You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi everyone, pardon the interruption, but just a quick message from me to let you know about the leadership survey we have just placed on the website. Here at The Great Coaches, we believe that there is no algorithm for leadership, but we have gone back to the transcripts of the more than 200 great coaches we've interviewed to identify their key leadership traits. We've then created a survey of 20 questions to help you compare your leadership style to theirs. It's free, only takes a few minutes to complete, and should help you find areas of relative strength and weakness. If you'd like to know more, check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to the Lessons from the Great Coaches podcast. I've learned that you don't do it alone. You learn so many different things from so many different coaches. That's an elite learning environment. Failure is not a problem. How you deal with it is a problem. How to be resilient. How important it is to infuse joy in the process of learning. To be a good coach, you've got to give more than you take. What an interesting life it is to be a leader. Hello and welcome to The Great Coaches Podcast, where we believe that there is no algorithm for leadership. And so we interview great sports coaches from around the world to try and find ideas to help all of us lead our families, our colleagues and our teams better. On this episode, we are joined by one of our past guests, the great coach Hugh McCutcheon, who has just written a book called Championship Behaviours. Hugh played volleyball for New Zealand national junior and senior teams before transitioning into coaching. In 2005, he was appointed as head coach of the USA men's volleyball team, who went on to win the gold medal at the 2008 Olympics. Then later in 2008, he was appointed coach of the USA women's team and led them to a silver medal at the 2012 Olympics. And just before we go to the interview, if you are looking to improve your own leadership skills, then you can reach us at elevatedleadership.io, where we coach you towards the leader you aspire to be. And now, please enjoy our interview on Championship Behaviours with Hugh McCutcheon. You're listening to the Lessons from the Great Coaches podcast. Hugh McCutcheon, hello and welcome back to the Great Coaches podcast. (laughs) Indeed, cheers. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Very excited to get you back because, of course, today we're going to be talking about your new book. And I guess my very first question, well, actually, before I do that, I should start, as I always do, and ask you where you are in the world and what you've been up to so far. Oh, all right. 
Well, I'm sitting here in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and yeah, just got back from the uh, from work. I, I'm I'm actually stopped coaching uh, in terms of coaching volleyball, coaching a team, and now working with all the coaches and the the programs in the athletic department. So it's very cool to exercise some of the things that we're talking about in the book and, and use those in different spaces. You know, the book was a a framework for competitive excellence in sport. And so I get to put that to the test. So uh, l- lucky me, I say. Yeah. Well, I, I must congratulate you on the book. I read it in two sittings. Absolutely loved it. There's a lot of stuff in there for, for parents or just for people that are running any kind of organization. It doesn't need to be a sporting one. But what was the impetus to write the book? Oh, it was a few things. I think initially there was a an idea around uh, this uh, this notion of different teams, different populations, and having similar levels of competitive success. You know, having coached uh, college men and college women, and Olympic men, Olympic women, and, and professional men, it's it's been an atypical path. And yet, even though we never really were worried about winning or focused exclusively on winning, even though we know that's part of our job responsibility, you know, we we're still able to have really strong levels of success. You know, close to eighty percent wins over the course of 25 years. So it just felt like having a principal base for a lot of the decisions that I was making with all these different programs, or, or at least uh, guiding principles that were, were helping me make decisions, it seemed like trying to cement that into something that was uh, accessible for, for everybody seemed like it was pretty cool. And in addition, I, I also was seeing you know, with my kids, our kids are almost 11 and 13 now, but they're involved in youth sport and, and the coaches have been fine. Don't get me wrong, but just the lack of structure and rigor around this really important role that people can have, and especially in a child's life, but in anyone's life. So to that end, the idea of trying to put something out there that could help people to be better in this space seemed yeah, worth pursuing. You, I'm a father of uh, two girls myself. And The theme in the book that really connected with me was competitive excellence. It's such a powerful idea. And could you tell us a little bit more about this this central idea? Well, first of all, look, we we if you're gonna live in the arena, you have to you're gonna have to compete for a living. That's that's just what we sign up for. But within that, you know, even though we all aspire to the outcomes, we have to understand that there are so many parts of that competitive equation that we don't get to control. There are lots of things that we do, certainly, but but the idea of competitive excellence is connected to the the very real need to define oneself in this thing versus feeling like you're getting defined by the outcome or your opponent. So it's really the idea of taking control of the things you can and and defining who you're going to be in those moments and controlling that so you, you have the best chance of getting the outcome that you aspire to. In the context of not being defined by the outcome, what role does the coach play in unlocking this idea of competitive excellence? I want to preface all of this by saying that that winning and having having this idea of committing to best practice or, or the emphasis on on process is not a mutually exclusive thing. Really, what I'm trying to speak to is this idea of like let's maximize all the things that we can to give ourselves the best possible chance of achieving the outcome. So it's not like you're either outcome-based or you're process-based and, and you've got to choose a CAM. Th- those things actually work really well synergistically, especially relative to uh, long-term success, where long-term success is sustained outcomes, but also I would say uh, the growth and development of the athletes that you're working with. 
not just as competitive commodities, but as people as well. And and I think that's that's part of it is is there's so much focus, especially throughout our life of comparison, social media, all the stuff that goes on, where we're representing that these three seconds of our life where we had it together somehow represent our 24-7. And yet we know that that's a false narrative, but those those images or those, those narratives are so powerful. And as a result, people you know, get off of maybe becoming the best version of themselves and either try to become someone else or something else, or if they don't feel they have the ability to uh, maybe achieve the outcome that they deem desirable, then all of a sudden they just stop. They stop doing stuff altogether for fear of being foolish or, or, or seeming insufficient or whatever, that, that idea of being embarrassed because you're not enough. And, and I just, as I was going through all of this, that idea of like, hey, look, all we can do is the best we can do. And, and that's easy to say. And it's a little bit hackneyed. I get that. But that idea of best effort, where best effort is best intention and best effort and best method, best practice, all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's a lot. It's a lot. But if you can invest in that, then yeah, sure, you're going to go compete. You'll win or you'll lose. You're good enough or you're not. But at least you'll know you did the best you could. And what more can you ask? It's a, it's a really great summary, I think, of what we're all trying to achieve as parents, leaders, partners, perhaps, or managers even at work. But there's another element of the book that really connected with me. And you talk about this idea of deliberate practice yeah. as a means of developing ex- expertise. And it sounds so simple, deliberate practice, but it's much, much, much more difficult <laughs> than that. We've got people listening, I guess, who who right. they wanted to bring more deliberate practice into their sporting or their non-sporting teams. Where would you tell them to start? The idea of deliberate practice is obviously Anders Ericsson, uh, who I proudly say was a, a very good friend of mine and and just such a wonderful man that we lost too soon and but what, we had many talks around, you know, what does his research on deliberate practice in controlled environments with controlled constraints and outcomes and all that kind of stuff, where there was a very linear relationship between the work and the outcome. You know, like the more you work the, and the more instruction you got, then the better you got. And it was all very clear. How does that transfer to something like sport, where you've got complicated skills and systems, a lot of randomness, and also, this very real idea that you can work as hard as you can, and you may not get the outcome, and you may not even get to play in a team sport. You know, you could be the first to practice and the last to leave. That doesn't mean you're going to be in the starting lineup. So, how do you build cultures and, and systems that support that? I that the amount of, uh, I guess, physical and emotional and mental effort that's required to engage in that idea of deliberate practice. And so, the term gets bandied about, I think, somewhat recklessly because it's not. It, it's 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 yet uh, well. I, I've tried to give it context within this framework, but it, don't mistake deliberate practice with just showing up and practicing, and certainly don't mistake practicing with sweating. Sweating is just working out. You know, the idea that you're going to come with a, an intention and a, a really clear idea of what part of what skill that's connected to this task that's going to allow us to get to this goal. Linking all of those things together is really what it's about and being able to cross the line every day and give it your best. And you should be fairly, fairly exhausted at the end of that with, with your mental and physical engagement and that activity. And that's hard to do. And not everyone's comfortable doing that, but it's, it's gotta be uncomfortable. If you're not pushing, if you're not stretching, then you're not growing, are you? You, I know you've only been in your new role for a short period of time, but have you had any quick success or early 
wins where you've engaged some of the coaches you're working with on this idea of being more deliberate in their practices? Well, with a few of them, because everyone's at different phases in this season. So there's a few teams that are that are getting ready for for the fall or for the or you know whatever autumn August here in the northern hemisphere. And what we've really tried to talk about within within this idea of intention, there, there are two parts to it. There's an intent to learn, and then there's an intent to compete, which I think I think is an important distinction. But but all that being said, connecting what I'm going to do today to trying to win whatever, the national championship, it, it can be a bit uh, tenuous at best unless you figure out how to really link that to certain identified skills or behaviors or levels of execution that you have to achieve, again, to give yourself the best chance of getting the outcome. So within the context of the discussions with Anders and, and working through how to build that into sport, one of the things that I got to was this idea of you know, having having the outcome goal, all right, let's win the, the medal or the trophy or the cup or whatever it is. And then really looking with this idea of a, a, some kind of correlative analysis as at what, what skills and at what level of execution what do I need to acquire to give myself the best chance of achieving the outcome? You know, so the example, you know, I'm a volleyball guy, right? So in, in our sport, it's serving, passing, and siding out. And, um, and there's some transition offense in there as well, if you had to get a fourth kind of Maslow's hierarchy of volleyball needs. But, but it turns out that blocking is an important skill, and it's a great skill, spectacular skill, but it doesn't correlate very highly to, to winning. So, so if we want to spend all our time in practice, and time is our enemy, right? Or, or maybe it's our, our friend, but we've only got so many hours or so many days to get it done. So we have to prioritize what, what to do. And so that idea of identifying the key tasks and the level that are really important to achieving the outcome or giving ourselves the best chance of achievement and then linking those tasks to our skill constructs, which are, are the ways that we teach the fundamental skills that we need to get good at to achieve the outcome. And those skill constructs are based in uh, you know, chunking information and, and trying to distill these complicated skills into their purest essence. So trying to find the four or five things that matter the most and teach to those. It, it affords us this opportunity. And I, I, it probably sounds a little complex, but it's, it's beautiful in its simplicity, in my opinion. I can walk into the gym or walk onto the field or walk onto the pitch or whatever it is and have a very clear idea of what tasks I need to get good at, at what level I need to execute, and I also know what parts I need to work on today. And with these skill constructs, they need to be incremental, certainly, but they, they're also sequential. So, you know, I can work on my footwork and then I can work on my arms. But if I haven't got my footwork right, then my arms will always be a little bit off kilter. So I've got to get these things right before I can move to the next thing. And so it's this idea of adding, adding layers and layers, rings on a tree, as you were. You know, that, that's what we're trying to do here. So that's probably more than you were asking for, Paul, but here's what it affords us, this idea of the ability to engage in deliberate practice, activity, have an intention, have a, a, a focus of something concrete and real that I can use today that's going to help me tomorrow, and then continue to build on that over the course of a season so that at the end, when we're competing for the big cup trophy medal, whatever it is, I've got the best chance of getting it. Hugh, another idea that resonated with me in the book was how you go about helping athletes to learn to read the game. Mm. 
I was really intrigued by it and I thought it was it was very unique. And I was wondering if you could just outline these methods that you use when it comes to helping people develop this skill. Well, I think in any sport, I'd say it's certainly at the elite levels, the ability to see things, to read the game is probably the premier skill. I think oftentimes I've even seen in, in football and soccer, you know, the, the best players are scanning the field and scanning the pitch and seeing the spaces and identifying things way before their opponents are or, or their other teammates are. And so uh, there's, there's a narrative around excellence that's connected to the idea of uh, some genetic predisposition, some talent-based thing uh, that they're born with that affords them this opportunity to be the best that they can be. And, and certainly genetics play a part. I mean, talent and sport, we know that they're connected, but it's this ability to see things and to read things at the elite level that becomes, I think, this very clear differentiator. The best, the best in any sport, yeah, they, they're, they're athletic, you know, like, and again, they will use volleyball. They're, they're long and they're strong and, and they can do all the skills at a really high level, but the, the great ones can take, a, you know, see a play and from all of the potentially infinite things that can occur, they can, they can distill based on each contact they can reduce the number of things to one or two at the point at the point of contact that they know it's either this or this, and that's a whole lot easier to do that than somehow you know thinking, well, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? You want to play this game uh, somehow with the idea of I'm I'm seeing it and I'm I'm in control versus I'm constantly in surprise. So the reading thing affords you the opportunity to obviously see the spaces, see the game, play the game but it also gives you time. It gives you time and it gives you the ability to make the right choices. And to me, ultimately, that's got to be a, a huge benefit to any athlete. So, so these athletes aren't super, I mean, they're, they're phenomenal and they're talented, but they don't have a big S on their chest. They're not jumping over a tall building in a single bound. They don't have 20, 10 vision or something. What they do have is the ability to see it. And, and it seems like they're, almost effortless in their execution of playing the sport. But how do you teach that, Hugh? Is it innate? Right. Can it be unlocked? Well, yeah, I think it can to a degree. Part of it is helping the athlete to identify what to look at and what matters. Yesterday, I was at American football practice with, uh, with the team here at Minnesota and the coach, PJ Fleck, and they, they run a phenomenal practice. And so I'm watching from, from the baseline as they're working their offensive sets, and I'm trying to see – where it's going and who's got, got it. And I've watched not very much American football, right? And it's certainly not from that angle. And it was hard. It was hard. And I know that game more than, more than most is about pattern recognition. So uh, can I learn to do it? Well, yeah. So how, how do you do that? Well, first of all, you've got to really, really, really look at the right things. And you may not see them for a while, but you got to look at them. You got to get used to looking at the moments of contact or the people that have the ball and then seeing what happens next. And then uh, over time, uh, then, then you understand what the things you're looking at, what they actually mean. And then you can build context around it and then you can, you know, get to the next step. But uh, as a volleyball player, so before I became a coach, I was an athlete and I, I started relatively late in the sport. So I always felt like I was catching up. So, you know, a lot of the, the, the best players in the world start very young and they see things and they know what they're looking at from, from a young age. I started in my mid-teens and, 
I didn't know much at all, but I was passionate about it and I wanted to learn and, and I, was, I was really trying to figure it out. But it took me years to understand what I was, what I was seeing. And now after 25 or 27 or whatever, it's been years of coaching it. Now I can, oh yeah, this is going to happen and this is going to happen, but it just takes time. And you've got to, you got to make sure you're looking at the right things. And I have this very clear memory in volleyball. We have this idea of looking at the hitter as a blocker, looking at the hitter to get a better idea of where to set up and how to stuff them. And for, you know, three years or two years, at least I was like, oh yeah, yeah. Look at the hitter, look at the hitter, you know, and thinking I was somehow doing it, but I wasn't. And then finally, when I was like, oh, look at that, look at them. Now I understand now look at them. And then I could see what it was actually going on. And then it was easy. And I was like, oh yeah, yeah. All you got to do is look at the head. I was telling my coach that and he was very angry, but I was also excited that I made that step. But like, yeah, we've been telling you that for three years. Come on. So it's, it's a tough sell, but it, it's, you got to do it. You got to engage in that. Like, Hey, what are you seeing? What are you looking at? What does that mean? Did you see this? Did you see that? It's a very Socratic method of inquiry. It's not the usual kind of didactic coach player, you know, I say jump, you say how, how, how high. You're listening to the Lessons from the Great Coaches podcast. Just a quick message from me to say that if you're looking to improve your own leadership skills, then you can reach us at elevatedleadership.io. We are executive coaches, of which I am one, with experience as international CEOs who understand the challenge of having to step forward even when you are unsure of what the moment requires of you. We are guided by the belief that there is no algorithm for leadership, but there is a way to align your values, vision and behaviour in a way that helps you excel and elevate your leadership. If you'd like to know more, our contact details are in the show notes. And now, back to the podcast. Hugh, there's a quote in your book that caught my eye. You say, coaches should strive to be five-star teachers first, then five-star coaching will follow. I tell people often that coaches need to be salespeople before they can become change agents. Now, I am a self-confessed <laughs> sales guy. That's how I started in life as a sales rep. And I, it, I wanted to ask you, what's the connection between being a five-star teacher and a yeah. salesperson? Well, listen, if we don't get the buy-in, we're not going to change anything. And that, that's what you got to do. And we're not, like I say in the book, we're not, we're not selling a used car here. We're selling principle-based stuff that, that can help the athlete to make the changes and achieve the things they hope to achieve. But it, it's, it's this very real thing. We, we can lead the horse to water. We can't make it drink. They're not going to make change unless they understand why they should make change. Now, I get it. You could beat that into them and, and be totalitarian in your approach or whatever, and you might get some short-term shifts. But mainly those shifts will happen out of compliance or fear of some kind of consequence or retribution. Um, that seems like a, I mean, fears-based coaching happens. I'm not saying that it's not a thing, but it just seems like the collateral damage for the, for the athlete and, and for the team over the long, long haul is really, really not worth it. It's, not, it's hard to sustain. So going back to this idea of salesperson, making it really clear, like, hey, here's where we need to go and here's why you need to do these things. And, and here we go. We need you to engage. Well, then it becomes a decision on their part to, to, to buy in or not. But, but as John Wooden said, if they haven't learned, you haven't taught. So if you're going to teach, you, you got to get the buy-in. Hold up. 
Hi, everyone. I'm here with Professor Eric Knight, the Executive Dean of the Macquarie Business School, and he's just stepped out of the classroom. So, Eric, what skills do you think leaders need to develop today to impact tomorrow? I think tomorrow is going to be digital. So the skills that we need in leaders is, one, strategy, so that they can see the outside world and understand all the changes that are playing out. But two, a people skills, so they can work with people's inside world, motivate them to be able to see the issues that matter and find ways through so that we solve those problems together. Thanks, Eric. The master's programs at the Macquarie Business School, designed to empower you, challenge you and transform the way you think. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. From buying to belligerent optimism, which I know is something you talk about a lot. How do you use this as a leader? Well, leadership can be a bit of an island. I think it can be a lonely space, especially in a profession like coaching where uh, there's a, at least in my opinion, a disproportionate amount of of power and and authority and, and, and stuff that's given. Oftentimes it's not earned. And so to that end, there are going to be plenty of moments where in a world that doesn't want you to show anything in terms of vulnerability or weakness, but you're going to have doubts and you're going to have moments where you're going to wake up at four in the morning and wonder what the hell you're doing and, and how on earth are we going to be able to fix this or how can we figure that problem out or whatever. And, and so to that end, the idea of belligerent optimism is connected to my resolute belief that I can figure it out. It's not arrogance, which I, is probably an overestimation of your abilities. It's, it's confidence that even when the world says you can't, you believe in the principles that are guiding your methods and you believe in your ability to sell it or do whatever and, and figure out a way through it. Because to me, one of the key elements of, of leadership is belief, belief in the mission, belief in the process, belief in the way you're doing it. And if you can't believe in yourself, well, it's surely hard to get anyone else to believe in you. And so I call it belligerent optimism because it, the, 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 the negative, the doubts, the, all that stuff, they're there, but you have to take a stand. And, and, and that's why principle-based methods allow you to take a stand in something that's got scientific rigor to it and some something substantive behind it versus you know these hopes or, or uh, my opinions or something i can rely on facts i can rely on the laws of physics and all that kind of stuff and and generally that helps me to get through these things in the book you talk a lot about high functioning teams and you and you actually interview some of the athletes that have participated in teams that you've been a part of championship teams, gold medal teams, silver medal team as well. And you've got this definition of a high-functioning team where you say they are a group of goal-focused individuals 
with specialized expertise and complementary skills who collaborate, yep. innovate, and produce consistently superior results. It's one of the better definitions I've read of a high-functioning team. And, and Hugh, we've done about 150 of these interviews now with great <laughs> coaches, but it was it was great. And I wanted to just, there was one element of it that con- continually comes up, and it doesn't matter whether they're in sport, life, work, wherever, and even in families. It's this idea of improving collaboration in teams. Sometimes right. it's called cohesion. It yeah. seems to be this sort of, this uh, secret that people are always trying to unlock. And I wanted to ask you, what tips have you got? Or have you even found methods that work better than others when it comes to improving collaboration? Well, a few things come to mind. I think one of the, one of the most freeing things that we've, we've done with teams is really give teammate behavior a clear structure. And what I mean by that, Paul, is I think a lot of people get onto teams or even into organizations or into professional contexts in the workplace. And and while we might have the HR definition of what an employee is, there's there's this, um, or or on the sports context, we have an idea of what it is to be on a team. But what does that teammate behavior look like? And what does it actually mean to be a teammate? And oftentimes, um, teammate gets blurred with friend as in, if, if we're going to be, a, if we have chemistry, whatever that is, cohesion, then that somehow that's expressed by us being, you know, hand in hand and, and, and we're all, you know, rainbows and ponies and in it together, which occasionally happens. But what we've found is that if we can talk to people about the responsibility of a teammate as something that's actually more important than friendship, not that friendship isn't important, but on teams, let's say you've got, you know, whatever, 20 people on a team, it's unlikely, uh, perhaps even naive to expect that you would have 20 best friends. What you have is a few people that you really connect with, uh, maybe some people that you have a good history with, and then other people that you're cool with, they're fine, but, but, you know, we don't have to be best friends, but we can be great teammates if we can take the expectation of best friends off the table and, that affords us the opportunity to operate in truth. So where I'm going with this is like, if we all expect friendship as the result of being on a team, then oftentimes we'll get faux friendship, we'll get fake friendship. It'll be disingenuous, not poorly intended, but not authentic. And I think part of the magic to high functioning teams is authenticity and, and the ability to operate in truth. So if we can get our teams to be friendly and, and not that friendship isn't, cool or, or, you know, is, is not something that might come to fruition or already there, that's fine. We're not against friendship. We're just saying be friendly to everybody, um, certainly be honest and direct, um, but that doesn't mean you get to be mean. You've got to be kind and considerate, but you've got to build empathy and understanding. You've got to get to know people. You've got to be respectful, uh, inclusive, all that kind of stuff matters. And, and one of the other big things on teams, I think, is also the ability to forgive because, uh, we're all we're all tainted with the human condition, and and we all make mistakes. And so, can you? Uh, you know, I talk in the book about forgive and learn, but I think that's that's the way to go. I mean, forgive and forget that that's leads yourself to make the same mistake again. So don't forget, but certainly forgive and learn. Where forgiveness is, I forgive you, and we move on. Right? We're not going to hold on to grudges. But all of that stuff around teams uh, affords the group the chance to to be real and to be themselves, to feel safe, 
to, to build trust. And ultimately, in my opinion, trust is the currency that makes high functioning teams work. And if, if you're not, if there are spaces between what you say and what you do, be that on the court or even socially, then, then trust is compromised. So being able to give people the freedom to be accepted for who they are, um, for them to, to commit to the team in a way that's authentic and to build relationships that are based in truth um, affords us the opportunity to really bring that into the court, pitch, field, whatever, and, and build on that foundation. One of the other behaviors you go into in the book is mental skills. What I liked about the way you talked about mental skills was you broke it down and you said you listed them out as being breathing, routines, self-talk, visualization, body language, emotional control, and journaling. And yep. then you talk about each of them. Um, it's it's very, it, it demystifies what can often be a, a bit of a black box for a lot of people that aren't in elite level sport. But Hugh, I was wondering if you could share a story on how you've focused on mental skills with a team or even an athlete and help them improve, just to make it a little bit more tangible and real. Sure, yeah. Well, first of all, to your point, I, did, I, I when I was an athlete, there was a there was this huge amount of mystery around sports psychology and performance psychology, and and even the idea of like, oh, I need to talk. To, or no, actually, when I was playing, we didn't have a sports psych to go to, but you'd read a book, you know, you go read the inner game of tennis, and and somehow that you'd try to reconcile who was self one and self two and figure that out. But the narrative was that somehow you were broken to even engage in that pursuit of, of figuring that out. But I think the reality is we, we all have to accept that our bodies don't do anything without our minds telling it what to do, right? So, so if you start from there, um, and again, I'll, I'll get to your, to, your, to your story in a second, but the idea that, that these things are connected and not siloed was, was really important for me. So that whole notion of kind of the physical, mental, and the, and the, and the social elements of of competition leading to achievement was, was something that I really believed in. And then as, as I was looking at the way the mental game was treated as an external, it seemed to me like we should just accept that this is part of the deal when we're teaching sport. Yeah, we've got the physical skills, but we also need the mental skills. They should, and those shouldn't be separate. They should be connected. We should be talking from day one about the fact that at some point in our season, it's going to get really big and scary and, and you know, all this kind of stuff. And we need to prepare that for that from the beginning. So um, when, I th- when I think about the mental game, there's, there's probably two athletes that come to mind. One, one was uh, operating from a position of fear. And, and she talks in the book, Sarah Wilhite, who, who was a remarkable volleyball player. But at, at the beginning of her career, was limited by the expectations of others and even the expectations of herself. You know, things had been relatively easy for her in her high school and club career. And now all of a sudden she was a big fish swimming with other big fish and it wasn't so easy anymore. And now the outcomes that were somehow validating and defining weren't giving her the same uh, reinforcement. And so over the years, we would, we would spend a lot of time working on how to uh, for want of a better phrase, kind of exercise those demons, how, how to free yourself of those expectations and how to just be present and engage in the moment of competition. And, you know, by her senior year, her success was unparalleled. She, she received every award that, that collegiate women's volleyball had to offer. And, and she's still playing, you know, she's in Japan right now playing professionally, but it's just, it was a remarkable transformation. And, and just because she learned how to control that part of her mind, 
it, it allowed her to control her performance on the court. Now, the, the other person that comes to mind with this idea of the, the mental part is, is emotional control, and that would be Riley Salmon. And Riley now is a coach at, at Concordia University here in, in, in uh, Irvine, California, but he, uh, his, his path to the national team was somewhat atypical. He had a bit of a chip on his shoulder, and he thought that if he just you know, worked and yelled and beat his chest and, and you know, was, was in it kind of physically and, and I would say reckless with his emotion, that somehow that was going to be enough. That if he just, you know, grunted and groaned and yelled and screamed and forced his way through stuff, that, that somehow that would allow him to achieve his goals. And what he found is that, that those behaviors were, were I mean, they, they were okay. They weren't helping him to be better. Because, you know, at some point you need your rational forebrain to engage, to make decisions. But, and he was always trying to, you know, fight his way through stuff. So he was constantly battling. But it also was kind of polarizing at times because he was so out of control emotionally that he would say stuff and he wasn't really aware of what he was saying or he would do stuff and he would kick a ball over here or do it. He was kind of polarizing from his teammates because he, he it clearly wasn't about the team. It was all about him, right? So... And I don't mean that he was selfish in any way, but that kind of emotional behavior, it seems really self-indulgent, doesn't it? So with Riley, you know, again, we talk about salespeople and trust and all that kind of stuff. I mean, we had lots of talks about how this looked and what, what were the strengths he could play to and tried to help him to figure out how to, how to live his authentic life on the court, how to be true to himself versus trying to be someone else or trying to live up to an expectation or, or, or try to be something that he wasn't. And so by giving him really clear definitions of what his strengths were, what his value add was to this team and how he could best serve the, his teammates and the, and the goal of the team, he was able to embrace that. And yeah, there were times where he got close to the edge, but we could talk him off the ledge a little bit, get him back into control. But again, it's another idea of, of, hey, you know, if he could control himself, he could control his performance. And if you, if you were to go back and watch any of the, certainly the medal round matches uh, of the 2008 uh, Beijing Olympic Games, I mean, Riley was just took some unbelievable swings, made some incredible plays. And here's a guy that's punching above his weight anyway. But he was he was phenomenal, and so I, I just think that going back to your your initial idea of like the mental game, I mean the mental and the physical are connected. You can't change that, and and I would suggest also that the social element of, of of sport is part of it too. But therefore, we have to teach to that. We have to we have to give people the the tools, the ability to to work on these parts of their mental game so that they can complement or augment their physical game. Hugh, it's, it's a great way to, to talk about the mental aspects of the game and the physical aspects of the game and how they come together. But I'd like to finish with another great passage from the book, if I could. And in the final pages, you say, we have a responsibility to ourselves to live each day as best we can with best effort and best intention, honouring the significant relationships in our lives and drinking deeply from the cup of humanity. It's a, it's a really great quote. And I guess the question just simply is, how do you hope to achieve this intention in the years ahead? Well, I tell you, you say that, and I remember writing it, and um, I get a bit goosebumpy, you know, because because it's so true. And as I was writing all of this, it was a very intense process putting the book together. And 
what I find is, you know, I, I don't know if you remember in that conclusion, there's, there's this very real discussion about the fact that we give away so many of our todays to our yesterdays <laughs> in, in the whole rhetoric of regret, or we, or we give so many todays away for our tomorrows in the hope of something better and, and without really knowing if that's going to be the case. And, you know, you're asking, well, how am I living that? Well, you know, the decision that I made to, to uh, pivot out of coaching a team directly and now working uh, in a different way, uh, hopefully, you know, coaching in a way, uh, maybe that's not the correct power dynamic, but certainly being an advocate and a resource for coaches and teams allows me to, to live that uh, in, a, in, a, in a very real way. It feels like I'm honoring my commitments to trying to be the best, and I, I say this knowing that none of us are perfect, but, you know, trying to be the best husband I can, certainly being the best father I can, trying to do what I can to help the teams and, and, and all that kind of stuff. So I just feel, as you say that, I get emotional because it's like, well, I feel like I've been given that opportunity and I just am so grateful for it. You, it's been fantastic to spend a little bit of time with you again today. The book's called Championship Behaviours. It's relevant for everybody, not just people who are involved in sport. And I thank you for joining us today. Yeah, truly a pleasure. It's always good to see you, mate. Hi, everyone. You've been listening to the great coach, Hugh McCutcheon, talk about his new book, Championship Behaviors. I hope you found a few ideas that you can bring to your own dinner table, locker room, or boardroom table for discussion. Hugh has great knowledge on the science and the craft of coaching. And some of the key parts of the interview for me were his view on competitive excellence, which he describes as maximizing all the things that you can control to give yourself the best possible chance of achieving the desired outcome. His ideas about deliberate practice and why it's important to not confuse practicing with sweating and the way he talks about teaching the skill of reading the game. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And just before we go, if you have any feedback, then please let us know. Just like the greenhouse who, after listening to our episode with Ricky Stewart, said, Canberra Raider fans, rugby league fans, this is a podcast that is worth listening to. It reveals a lot about the things that make Ricky Stewart tick. Thanks, the greenhouse. The interaction with people around the world who listen gives us great energy. And so if you have any feedback or comments, then please let us know. And also, if you're interested in helping us create one of the world's best leadership libraries from the lessons our interview guests share with us, then you can sponsor us through the Patreon. All the details on how to do this or just connect with us are in the show notes or on our website thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Marketers and advertisers, brands big and small. You've been after a special someone for a while now. You think they're into you. I mean, you share the same interests, both passionate about the same stuff. Why wouldn't they be? Wait, there's a moment of silence. It's finally just you two alone. They're waiting. Go on, shoot your shot. You've got a voice. Use it now. Hearts are racing. Breathing becomes heavier. This is your chance to win them over. So what are you going to say? Get closer to your audience. Make podcast ads with Acast. Head to go.acast.com closer to get started.